Welcome, everybody. This is Narrative Dissonance on Unsafe Space. Um, and we just lost my face on, on the screen. Uh, Juliet just disappeared. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I don't have a hiss in my mic, though. Uh, let me see if I can fix that. We can that. hear you anyway. Well, good. Okay. Uh, Carter, do you want to take the intro while I figure this out? <laughs> sure. You're watching Narrative Dissonance on Unsafe Space. This is a show uh, that airs every Monday at 2 uh, p.m. Pacific in which we question mainstream narratives and, uh, you know, generally talk about things that uh, I was going to say um, Brian Stelter wouldn't, but he wouldn't talk about anything. I think he got fired or left or something. I don't know. Something, things that, that uh, Don Lemon wouldn't talk about. Anyway, you can watch us at uh, on YouTube as long as we are surviving here. Uh, we're also on Rumble. We're starting to build our Rumble channel up a little bit. Um, and also Odyssey, Utreon, and... Um, you know, we have a live stream embedded in our website. So welcome. If you're new, you can follow us on Twitter at underscore unsafe space. That is the resurrected Twitter account. We've been banned like every good Twitter user. We went through our ban. Um, what else? Am I forgetting anything, Juliet? Um, no. Uh, book club? This coming up. Oh. We, well, we had book club yesterday. And then uh, the next one is October 30th, and we're doing Slaughterhouse Five. Yep, and Juliet is the host for Slaughterhouse Five. I think yeah. uh, yesterday people were just afraid of this book. I don't know <laughs> what it was. It was a, uh, I I thought it was a good book to read. We read, it was the Satanic Verses uh, right. by Salman Rushdie, but uh, yeah, sometimes people like the easier to read stuff, and this was not that was not an easy book. I think Slaughterhouse Five is going to be easy and fun, and I don't know anything about it. Okay. But I assume it sounds like it's a good Halloween book, right? No? <laughs> we might trick people into reading it thinking oh, that. It's not actually. A, oh, <laughs> <No>. damn it. <laughs> it sounds like, you know, there's going to be axe murdering and stuff in it. But, right, you know. right. Okay, fair enough. Um, <laughs> let's uh, let's dive into the show then today without further ado. Um, today we're very happy to welcome back to the show uh, a, a panelist who's been here before, Brian McGlinchey. Brian is an independent journalist whose work has been credited by the New York Times, Associated Press Times of London and others. His Substack newsletter, Stark Realities with Brian McGlinchey, undermines official narratives. Hey, I like that. Uh, demolishes conventional wisdom and exposes fundamental myths across the political spectrum. And you can go to starkrealities.substack.com to sign up. I really like it, so I do recommend uh, that you read it. It's easy to read. It's well-researched. He's always bringing in stuff that, uh, yeah, when they cherry-pick data, he, he like, goes and grabs the pits and throws them out in front of you for you to read. So, uh, welcome, Brian. <laughs> hey, great to be back with you, and good to meet you, Juliet. Yes. So, um, you, you've been on the show before, so you know how we typically start the show off. So uh, I'll just open with our standard question. What's the most important story about which mainstream media has misled people in the last eh, week, months, whatever, recent, um, recent history? Misled. I'll get, I'll, with this past week, um, we had the news that uh, Vladimir Putin had granted citizenship to Edward Snowden, the famed NSA whistleblower. And mm -hmm. uh, that prompted a whole reiteration of a kind of a myth that goes even across the political spectrum, which people, when they're talking about the circumstances that led Snowden to end up in Russia, you always hear them say that he fled to Russia uh, after, after revealing all the secrets of the, uh, of the deep state and that massive unconstitutional, illegal 
mass surveillance program that was was going on and, and still is um, to some extent, of course. Um, and uh, you know that, that's uh, false. You know, what people don't realize is that he, Snowden wasn't um, he didn't flee to Moscow. He was just simply traveling through Moscow. Um, you'll recall he went to Hong Kong. Uh, where he met with uh, Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras, you know, two journalists uh, working you know, for the Guardian, and uh, passed along all the two hundred thousand files, uh, NSA files, um, and then he was next trying to get to uh, Ecuador, you know, following Julian Assange's steps in a different way. You know, Assange was you know, spent many years uh, in exile in the Ecuadorian consul uh, consulate in London. Um, similarly, uh, Snowden had hopes that Ecuador would grant him a political asylum. And so he's trying to travel to Ecuador. Um, and in doing so, he had to be very careful about his, uh, flight path and his connections. So he went through, uh, he was, he was scheduled to go through Moscow, uh, then on to Havana, uh, Caracas, Venezuela, and then finally Quito, Ecuador. Um, why is he in Russia? Because... He, uh, the Obama administration canceled his passport while he was in the air heading to Russia. So yep. they, in effect, trapped him in Russia, which in doing so, they undermined their own narratives, right? Here we have this dangerous traitor to the country um, who you know, had absconded with all these files, uh, uh, not out of uh, patriotism, but, you know, out of self-interest or what have you, or egotism, you know, all the things they kind of threw at him or, or that, you know, it was for money uh, and that, you know, he fled to Russia. Well, you know, absolutely not the case. Um, and if that had been true, that that was their profile of this individual, why on earth would they yank his passport and say, aha, you're trapped in Russia, our major adversary, right? It just didn't make any sense, but it doesn't, kind of underscores that th narratives don't even have to make sense. Yeah. You know, for them to be yeah. effective and gain traction, it's been, uh, what, nine years, I guess, since, since he's been, you know, since that whole episode happened and you still see people on Twitter. You still saw the, in the past week as they were reporting on the grant of citizenship to Snowden by Russia. Um, you saw New York times, even the guardian, you know, which was one of the initial publications that uh, helped publish the, the secrets that were revealed. Even they had a, a headline talking about referring to the fact that he had fled to Russia. So um, these things is, have traction. I mean, that framing is important, right? Because um, fleeing, it, it's there's you know there's that kind of concept. If you flee the scene of a crime, you're you're by implication, you're kind of there's this guilt by implication that people assume. Well, why'd you? If it was an accident, why did you flee? Right, like right. you know, or if it's if you're innocent, why did you run? And um, and so that just using that language, like he flees, fleeing to Russia, absolutely, you're right, doubles down on this narrative of like, oh, he wanted to go hand some intel to Putin, right. as if that was his plan at all. Um, and you know, I I don't think people understand when you're in that circumstance. Like you said, he can't. You couldn't even fly over airspace that was U.S. airspace. So he had to take a very circuitous route to try and get. I think Havana was one of the stops that he was right. going to make, and like he was trying to go get from basically Hong Kong to Ecuador 
without touching U.S. territory or flying over U.S. airspace. Right, and and um, he, he was taking even a risk even with that itinerary because it had him. He would have been flying over uh, NATO airspace at one point. Um, mm. And you might remember around that time, um, I think it was Evo Morales, a South American leader, was uh, le- he had a, he was in Moscow uh, mm-hmm. and was flying back home, and the you know, U.S. actually orchestrated for this. Pre, you know, president of a country, his flight to be uh, diverted. So the yes, plane, his that. plane could be, I mean, it's a major violation of sovereignty because they suspected, you know, that uh, Snowden was, uh, you know, on the plane with him or hiding on it. So, um, so he was, even, he was even taking a chance with the itinerary he had um, in mind. Yeah. So he lands in Moscow expecting to do a connection. Actually, if, if anyone is interested, uh, I think it's called. Is it called Citizen Four? Do you know the documentary that's? Um, yeah, Citizen Four about, is one of the documentaries. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and, they, and there's the, footage from this. Like, there's a camera with him because Glenn Greenwald is with him uh, part of the time, and then they hand off to to some other uh, people who can help him, um, you know, evade <laughs> capture. Uh, and he, you know, he lands in the airport, and it's like, well, you have no passport, and you don't, you don't think about that. But if you're stuck in a Russian airport with no passport. No other country will let you fly. You can't. You can't go anywhere. Right. He uh, he's supposed to have a twenty-three layover, twenty-three hour layover in Moscow, and uh, he's quickly security quickly took him Russian security to a conference room, and they told him that his passport. They they said, "Oh, you don't know, <laughs> you know," and they told <laughs> right. him your passport canceled. Snowden thought they might have been bluffing because he's in his. You know, he's had an intelligence career of his own of sorts. And right. So he, he thought that they might be bluffing and trying to get info out of him or work with them. Um, and uh, uh, the, he was accompanied by a WikiLeaks uh, editor who had flown oh, to Hong Kong and then was traveling, tra- traveled with him, trying to help him navigate all these hurdles to get through that. And you know, she's looking it up at the same time and says, you know, she finds all the news reports that, yes, uh, the passport's been canceled. So... And he, 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 I mean, according to Snowden, he destroyed his key material before he got on a plane, which right. is important to understand. Um, I mean, I've read his his uh, his book, and he comes across as a guy. Honestly, he comes across as a guy who's just trying to do the right thing. Right. Um, he's definitely security conscience, conscious. And uh, as someone who was in security for a while myself, like I, I would have absolutely, if I knew I was flying through countries that were hostile to the country that I was, yes, I was leaking information about, but I cared about the country and I want, you know, he was very careful with what he released. He didn't just release it willy nilly. He was careful. He, and he um, vetted the reporters that he released very specific information to. So he wasn't trying to just, you know, give a data dump on everything the NSA does to everyone. Right. Right. He had selected those journalists with, with the idea that they would, vet that material and be very responsible about you know, apply proper journalistic standards and uh, mm-hmm. you know, anticipate any potential actual real world harm that might come to people. Um, yeah. So yeah, and like you said, he's a very practiced and very diligent, a very uh, much thought out uh, caper, everybody <laughs> want to right. call it that he put. Yeah. So yeah, so knowing that he was going to be traveling to Russia, Havana, um, or just his whole mission was to get, let's get this in the hands of journalism and let journalism Take over. Perform that function for society that it should perform, right? So that's right. kind of it was kind of for him. It's kind of mission accomplished in Hong Kong. Once he handed that over uh, to right. uh, Greenwald, 
And so, yes, there's, he had no reason to bring that. It only made him, it only make him more of a target. He was already feeling right. There's like a reason it. to not bring it. There's a reason exactly. to destroy like, You can kill yeah. me all, you know, you can kill me if you want, but I don't have it anymore. You know, so it was right. not in his interest to even uh, do that. Yeah. So that, I mean, that makes perfect sense. He gets to Russia. And like you said, I, I want to just underscore this, that this whole narrative is that he's working with Putin, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I, I'm trying to think of a good analogy, but it's like, if you're falsely accusing your spouse of cheating on you with someone else, it's like locking them in that other person's house. Like, well, I, yeah. I wasn't like, I was yeah. walking by, you shoved me in the door and locked it. And now you're like, see, he's in the yeah. house. It's like, that's well, right. I, that's not, that's not what was happening. Right. And still, I mean, on Twitter, you see all these uh, neocon types. I mean, they just continue to say, oh, Russian agent, you know, and all this sort of thing. Um, right. Yeah. So the, uh, correct, I don't really understand how this works too much, but my assumption is he hasn't been able to leave Russia at all, even if there was a friendly country uh, to go to because he didn't have a passport. But now he should be able to. If he's got Russian citizenship, he should be able to travel on a Russian passport now. I yeah, I'd not, that's a good point. That had not occurred to me. Yeah. Yeah, to my knowledge, he has not left Russia at all. He's done many conference appearances and that type of thing uh, via uh, video. Um, mm -hmm. But I didn't think about that, that this might be his opportunity to uh, depart. But imagine, just imagine him. I mean, he talk about uh, bringing on the wrath of the entire intelligence complex and national security complex. I mean, uh, you don't want to, there's no worse <laughs> enemy. I think. Yeah, I mean, you might be hesitant to just go somewhere <laughs> and you right. know, go to that's true i'd be hesitant to go to the supermarket <laughs> in moscow is I mean. right right yeah so let's see what he does with his uh with yeah. his uh, and, new bound potential there and his girlfriend was then forced to move basically well not forced but she moved there right uh, i think they've been they're married and have a kid now um, two yeah two sons now two yeah two kids yeah um so and that's another people call him cowardly. What a cowardly act, you know, for oh, him to yes. do it to do it this way. It's like, really? You know, we're talking about he had this great six figure income. He's living in Hawaii with his girlfriend, you know. Um, oh, it's extremely he's a famous instructor. Brave. You know, he's got the whole uh, mm -hmm. uh, this life in Hawaii and to give that up, you know, and he didn't tell her when he was leaving. Right. You know, to protect her. Left, yeah, to right. protect her. Um, so, I mean, uh, yeah, cowardly is not, not necessarily the word, which, which brings up another myth, if we could, is that uh, in reporting on this and in chatter on this whole episode, you know, people say, well, if, if it's cowardly, uh, you know, the Snowden, if he wanted to do things the right way, he would have turned that material over and then turned himself into the police and uh, gone before a court and made his case of why he should do that. <laughs> And that is a complete, uh, this is a complete mythological foundation uh -huh. because because what he's being charged with under is the Espionage Act of 1917, this arcane, outdated uh, fossil of a law that's kind of applied in a whole new ways that were surely not anticipated at the time. I mean, espionage, when this law was crafted, I think, you know, it was about what you and I would think of it, you know, a person on the street would think of it is, uh, you know, giving secrets to the enemy. You know, not to Glenn right. Greenwald <laughs> or the Guardian <laughs> or the Washington right. Post, you know, but giving it to the enemy so that they can use it to, you know, attack, sink our subs or ships or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and under the Espionage Act, though, you know, to get back to the point, um, 
there is no opportunity to make that defense. You can't, there's no opportunity at all whatsoever to defend yourself based on, well, I was a whistleblower. You're not allowed to make that assertion. Um, you can't say this was you know, the right thing for society. I exposed uh, unconstitutional conduct at the highest levels of government. And this probably the most massive violation of the, of the constitution we've ever seen. If you think about it, um, mm -hmm. none of that is permissible in an espionage act suit. It's just black and white. Did you, or did you not, transfer this top trigger, you know, information to somebody who wasn't authorized for it. Uh, so the, and we've seen what happened to predecessors of Snowden who attempted to use, you know, the legitimate channels of, uh, of combating this type of misconduct, right. you know, where right. they're uh, like Thomas Drake, um, Benny at the NSA, you had a number of figures who came before him. And I think were an inspiration to him who, uh, who, when they tried to use those avenues, they end up with, uh, you know, a SWAT raid at their house and, and then again, facing uh, a judicial system that doesn't allow them to make the case that what they did was for, uh, you know, the good of the country and to expose wrongdoing. So um, yep. he had, you know, he'd been able to witness and see, okay, that's what happens when you go that route. You know, that's a dead end. I've, you know, the route I've got to go is, uh, is through the, uh, through journalism and, and publicizing this, this facts and letting, letting it go from there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's also talk about this is I mean, one of the most depressing things about Snowden to me is the consequences, uh, not to him personally, which is also depressing. I mean, I feel bad for the guy you think about. I think he was in his 20s, uh, mm -hmm. which I think he might have been early 30s. But I think he's very he was in his young. 20s. Yeah. Like it's that's I mean, it's the beginning of your life. Like you've got he hadn't started a family yet. His basically his entire career is ahead of him. Um you know, and the guy gives up. I mean, he's he can never come back to the United States. He can never come to many places. It's not like he can can't go to most of Europe. Like he's just basically he's given up uh, so much for this. That's disturbing. But even more disturbing is when I look at what it was for, because you know you had James Clapper lie uh, publicly about what the NSA was doing and zero consequences. Nothing has happened. And, and as far as we know, nothing has changed. I mean, they may have said, well, we, you know, we'll don't worry, we'll fix it, but there's no transparency. So we have no idea. Right. They have, I think they have curtailed one of the programs, but that's one of the things that's always nagged to me is what you just said is, okay, you tell the ultra secretive national security apparatus to stop doing some behavior. <laughs> That they yeah, weren't supposed the, to be doing in the first place and were lying about. Yeah, yeah, lying to Congress. I mean, Congress is there for oversight. And, uh, and like you said, one of the things that uh, Snowden exposed was was them lying to Congress. James Clapper, the uh, at the time the director of national intelligence, um, point blank asked by uh, Senator Ron Wyden, uh, you know, does the NSA, you know, capture data on millions of Americans? Um because because Wyden knew the answer, you know. Sure. <laughs> I don't know how right. it came to him, but he knew the answer, and so he uh, thought, well, we'll put him on the spot and ask him there. And yeah. then Clapper said, "No, they don't." And he, people had fun watch with the. It was like the worst poker player ever. If you watch the uh, <laughs> the video clip, and it's I wrote on this topic this last week at StarkRealities.substack.com, but the video is there of him lying, and he says. Uh, the, the question is asked. He says, no. And he goes, 
not wittingly, you know, like does this poker tell where we might touching his face. (laughs) (laughs) And so, uh, but yeah. And what happens to him? I mean, that's perjury, not just perjury, maybe to protect himself, but perjury to protect an enormous unconstitutional program, a mass violation of the fourth amendment. What happens to him? Nothing. He doesn't even lose his job, much less be, uh, you know, pursued on a perjury charge. And, and then the uh, uh, mainstream media continues to look at him as this, oh, let's, you know, here's developments in Russia. Let's see what James Clapper has to say about it. You know, and he's a paid <laughs> consultant now for uh, right. CNN. You know, right. and that's the case of a lot of these uh, uh, alumni of the uh, national security establishment is now they, uh, they're on MSNBC or, you know, they're a, a paid consultant. You know, back in the earlier days of all this, you had the uh, uh, CIA kind of working indirectly with journalists to try to get mm-hmm. their desired messaging out there. And now the middleman's out. You know, you've got these mm-hmm. alumni of the national security establishment and, you know, it's kind of like once a Marine, always a Marine. I mean, I think for all these people, they're, you know, they're embedded with that whole community and boards of directors and all that kind of stuff. Well, and they have um, a vested interest to not admit that anything's going wrong. Right. Because it's their, their right. reputation. Right. Right. So now they, you know. yeah. So they've got this direct pulpit from which to, uh, say whatever they want, you know, again, put, put this CIA talking points out directly and be, you know, revered as they're doing it by, uh, yeah. by journalists who aren't, you know, aren't prone to question. It's funny to watch the evolution of some of the journalism where, you know, what you would think it was a left leaning MSNBC, the way they fawn over the uh, national security uh, uh, former heads and CIA directors, you know, just kind of incon- inconsistent with what you'd think would be uh, previous ideals uh, you know, from the progressive community, you know, to to fawn over these people. Yeah. Well, they've probably been. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not. I'm. This is probably not the entire story, but I mean, there what have been decades of like you mentioned. There was a much more subtle. Well, I won't say subtle, but behind the scenes right. movement to. Um, to manipulate how the American public or how the, how these intelligence agencies were uh, portrayed to the American public. And part of that has been, you know, during my entire childhood, uh, which is, you know, I'm in my late forties now, right? My entire childhood, uh, every movie, um, every television show depicted the, the brave met heroic men and women of, if the CIA was involved, they were, viewed as uh this with this heroic there was a heroic mystique and they were they were saviors of the country stopping you know bending the rule the kind of the jack bauer 24 kind of thing like (laughs) bending the rules but only because we were all going to die in a nuclear blast and it's a good thing we have jack bauer right um and that was true for the fbi that was true for the cia it was true for any of the and even the nsa was viewed as like a little bit of uh you know, darker shade uh, morally, but super necessary and like you know, all these really cool tool, tools and good things right. for the NSA. And so, you know, if you're raised on that and you're a journalist in your 40s now, uh, it's almost not anything that you would question. Like, of course, these are the heroes. Right. 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 James Clapper, is a, he runs the, the organization of heroes. Why would I, why would I say something, uh, to piss him off. Why would I be such a jerk to like ask hard questions of him or question his motives? Can't question their motives. Um, 
we want them on that wall. Right? <laughs> That's right. That's yeah, and, and and then hand in hand with that goes the uh, the whole access dynamic. If you report yes. negative, if they were, you know, the people who do report negatively on them, you know, they're not going to get that next interview. Or, you know, a confrontational interview mm-hmm. of the, the CIA director or you know whatever you want to, any one of these characters, you know, and that's true you know, of other elements of government too. That if you want to have that continued access to your White House sources and all that type of stuff, well, you better not get too adversarial. Right, you're not invited to the next press conference, and he won't sit down with you for the next one. Yeah, um, yeah, it's 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 a uh, it's a real it's a real shame, and um, yeah, I I forgot my train of thought. I was it just that that's one of the things that really bothers. So so let's contrast. Edward Snowden, were he to return to the United States, would face possible execution. I mean, there would be trials or whatever. But like Espionage Act is not like at least life in prison. He's hated enough that like this is his life hangs in the balance in a major way. So that's the guy who reported on these things that the NSA was doing, which were unconstitutional. How many people have lost their jobs for doing the things that he reported that were unconstitutional? Is it a nice round number? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt anyone. I mean, I'm not aware of anyone. If anyone did, it would be because they didn't uh, catch him on the way out. But even that, I'm sure, hasn't happened. You know? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, and and that's the thing. I mean, if it's kind of like if someone apologizes, but their behavior doesn't change, like there's not, you don't really, need, you shouldn't be taking that apology seriously. And I and I see this, hey. Uh, well, first of all, James Clapper wasn't even really contrite. But e- even when there's like feigned contrition, like, oops, sorry about that. Well, oh, that was a mistake. We'll fix all that data collection we didn't mean to do. There's never any follow up. There's no like <laughs> no one ever says like, oh, so who was responsible? Give me the list of names and we are going to a fire them and b perhaps prosecute them for misuse of of resources like this is. If you were a soldier in the military and you picked up an M16 or MP5 or whatever they use now, and you just started mowing down citizens in the middle of Los Angeles, presumably you would get in trouble for that. This is worse. Uh-huh. I mean, this is this is affecting weight. This is affecting all 331 million people. Who knows what the effect? I mean, you know, it's hard to say it's worse than murder, but I, I you know, from a long-term perspective of government power and and the the, built, the building the apparatus of the security state, this is worse. Yeah, it's the same lack of consequences applies to almost everything. I mean, anytime the government missteps, does the wrong thing, or is grossly negligent, the on, typically the only uh, result of that is that that same agency gets more power and a bigger budget. Right. You know, we need more money to fix the problem. Exactly. <laughs> oh, well, okay, we need to install a new uh, security apparatus so that we... Uh, can't have people sneaking out documents like Snowden did, you know, so we need a whole budget for that program. As if that's the um, problem. Right, right. exactly. Yeah. Um, 9-11 is a colossal example of this. I mean, talk about a failure uh, yep. to the American people and no one was punished, fired, anything. I mean, nobody lost their job over that. And, you know, an enormous expansion of power, you know, along the lines of what we're talking about here, uh, mass surveillance, uh, but also in, in budgets, a whole new departments created, Department of Homeland Security, 
with the biggest, most expensive uh, headquarters ever built in federal government history. Um, uh, so that's the, that's kind of one of those uh, integral parts of government, you know, is that uh, you can only, <laughs> failure just brings rewards, <laughs> you know, brings more power and a, a greater budget. We need more money to accomplish what you want, Congress. Okay, so. Right. Yeah. Why is it that, uh, I mean, I, I'm, maybe you don't know the answer to it, so this is a, a speculation question, but uh, why is it that so many of the people that I would say are the renegade Republicans, not kind of the traditional ones, but the even the Trump kind of Republicans, right? They're kind of the, the renegade populist Republicans who are, seemingly willing to ruffle feathers and and say nasty things about Washington in a way that traditional Republicans won't. Mm -hmm. um, even they uh, don't seem to be really interested in pardoning Snowden, um, actually any dismantling. I mean, Trump ran on this uh, drain the swamp uh, campaign, and and yet the people who point out which parts of the swamp are most toxic and where you should drain first, he didn't bother to pardon. I mean, you can complain about, oh, he didn't do this because they were stopping him here and they were stopping this. He has he had 100% power to pardon Assange and Snowden if he wanted right. to. Right. Nothing. Um, I think uh, we you know, talk more broadly about the you know, members of Congress that are you know more renegade and so forth. Um, I, th I think it comes down to a, a very rational fear of the national security establishment. Uh -huh. I mean, they're able to, we see in their technological capabilities, um, we've got the legacy of uh, FBI director Hoover who had files on members of Congress. Um, and he would, I mean, he would summon a member of Congress to his office and say, Hey, I just wanted to let you know, you know, we we're investigating something and we found out about your uh, granddaughter's drug problem. I just want you to know, we're going to keep that confidential. You know <laughs> what that was, you know, there was this obvious message there. Like, Hey, let's, let's not mess with the FBI's budget requests or anything else. And we're going to be just yeah. fine. You know, I mean, that actually went on. So, I mean, you've got that legacy. I think it was Senator Chuck Schumer during the Trump administration who uh, kind of let down that guard briefly. He, I think it was him who, he was talking about uh, in the, Trump taking on the national security establishment. And he said something like, well, he, he's going to find out if you do that, you do it at your own peril. You know, <laughs> he kind of, kind of explicitly acknowledged that, that dynamic. Yep. Um, okay. I, so I think that's true of members of Congress. And, you know, I had some hopes on the way out that uh, Trump having himself uh, uh been a victim of misconduct by the national security establishment in wanting to oust him. You know, you could say whether he should be president or not. It's one thing to have that discussion. It's another to talk about the way that the FBI and uh, other parts of national security uh, went after him, um, you know, whatever their motives were. Um, uh, even himself having been a victim, he thought, well, maybe he'll stick it to him on the way out, right? And pardon Assange or, uh, and or Snowden. Um, mm -hmm. especially Assange. I mean, WikiLeaks was so big to him. Yeah. You remember him being controversial at the podium right. saying, Hey, Wiki, yay, WikiLeaks and bring it on. <laughs> I hope, hope WikiLeaks leaks some more stuff. Um, and I think for him, you know, it might've been that, that, that 
you know, I think it was I think it was obviously out of self interest. Trump's obviously a self interested politician, <laughs> like they all are. Um, and I think on his way out, he was already anticipating a twenty twenty four run. Um, and so I think he said, "Well, I don't I don't need to be picking fights with the uh, uh, intelligence community because I'm going to be back here and hopefully in." four years or three years running a campaign and then maybe back in office. So I think self-interest drove them to not, uh, you know, throw that dart at them that a lot of us. Do you think he was already thinking of this? He was already. I I mean, I think that, yeah. I mean, even at the time, I think people were kind of pointing out, Hey, he's eligible to run again. (laughs) So, yeah. I mean, it's, I, uh, you know, the hope for the Trump presidency. I mean, I was never a huge avid, you know, there's things I liked about Trump uh, and certainly I liked him better than Hillary Clinton (laughs) just because he wasn't (laughs) part of the deep state apparatus already. Um, But uh, you know, any hope that I had, he kind of put the nail in the coffin when he left office and I was hoping for Assange, Albright, uh, Ross, Albright, uh, Ross and, um, Ulrich or, uh, not the, oh yeah. You're talking about the, uh, Silk Road. Yeah. Is that who you, yeah. Yeah. I wanted those yeah. three pardons and I thought, well, look, as, as tough as his life has been, like I could imagine get, you know, I would never want to be president, but I can imagine like being president, dealing with a bunch of crap, uh, kind of a mess. It sucks. They're fighting against you. You're going through the COVID, the COVID thing happens. It's a total mess, but at least on your way out. Right. I mean, at least on your way out, you can be like, well, look, there's some basic things I know. Pardon, pardon, pardon. Right. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> like, at least and I can did, And he did do a bunch of pardons, you know, of other types, you know, but uh, not some that could have really, uh, really bolstered the spirits of a lot of people, you know. And, I think uh, so. And sent a shot across the bow of the uh, intelligence community. Yeah. Well, and it, it, I think it undermines his failure to do that, I think – if he was thinking about 2024, I think his failure to do that undermines his drain the swamp message. He can't, he can't go back because he's lost all credibility with, he could have said it. If he had done that, he could have at least come back and said, look, I've been fighting. I, you know, I was stopped and prevented from doing a bunch of stuff. But when I could fight, like the last thing I could do at least was this, this is, this is as much as I could Uh do. Right. Um, But yeah. 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 I think, so I think for Snowden, our only hope is a, uh, I mean, a pardon just seems unlikely because, you know, whether it's the red team or blue team that controls the uh, presidency, with uh, this dynamic keeps applying. Um, yeah. That's a real long shot. But uh, another would be a, a plea deal, you know, where he agreed. And he's kind of, he's hint, uh, communicated, I think, his uh, willingness to do that. You know, hey, I'll take, I don't know what he said, but, yeah, I think he'd be willing to do maybe a year in prison or whatever it might be. Um, yeah. Just so that he can officially get his hand slapped and they can save some face. Right. And I guess he wouldn't be pleading guilty to, well, I guess it'd just be, you know, something about turning over documents. Yep. That's what I did. I did for the right reasons. And then, you know, the plea deal. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, talk about navigating that process and trusting the counterparty. If you're Snowden (laughs) and negotiating that, yeah, come on back. to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like you said, I, like, I don't know. Uh, someone in chat said the CIA sent a clear message when they shot Kennedy in broad daylight in front of his wife and supporters. I don't want to. I don't know who shot Kennedy, so I, like I'm gonna pretend that. Like I, I don't actually. I'm not gonna. I don't want to get into the conspiracy theory part of it, but uh, there is Jeff Denner. There's generally a sentiment that 
yeah, this is totally something they would do. Uh-huh. They, they would totally right. murder you. Well, if you um, mean the devil's chessboard uh, by mm-mm. Talbot, can't remember his first name. Um, it's a big book. So if it's on your reading club, it might be like a two month thing. <laughs> <laughs> Alex will pick it, I'm sure. But what's it called? The devil's devil's chessboard, I think. It's about Chess- the CIA and it kind of traces it from its uh, early days. David Talbot. David Talbot, okay. thank you. Um, uh, and the Dulles brothers, you know, one over state and the other over uh, intelligence. And um, number one, it does lead you to think, yes, it's extremely plausible that the CIA could have had a hand in the Kennedy assassination and thus sent a message, cautionary message to every president who came afterward mm-hmm. to the to the commenter's point. Um, but even that aside, reading that book, it really uh, totally deprograms you from all the propaganda that you had mentioned earlier that we all grow up with, you know, watching movies mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff and reading spy novels, that type of thing. And it really reinforces that uh, the CIA, the CIA has been sinister, absolutely sinister from day one. Uh, and I know Truman quickly came to wonder what he had cre- you know, created when he put, uh, you know, let that become a permanent fixture after uh, World War II. I mean, when you, you read that book and you see the utter ruthlessness with which the CIA will put in- innocent individuals through, um, one of the early chapters, not to get into it too much, but uh, you know, they send somebody off on a kind of a bogus uh, trip into Europe, knowing that they would suspe- be suspected of being a spy, and this person gets you know, locked up and put into a frozen prison, and they don't care because it helped, you know, create the mischief that they wanted to create. So, um, so yeah, I do recommend that book, and it does. Uh, it does. Yeah, uh, that sounds. Yeah, that, that 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 sounds fascinating. I know. Um, the two books that I was thinking of, which are not directly about the CIA, but a touch on the CIA, or at least America's involvement in, in some nefarious activity, are the, the Management of Savagery uh, and Scott Horton's um, book, uh, what's it called? Enough Already. Um, both of those talk about you know how the U.S. behaves around the world in clandestine manners and you know, we have to assume that the puppet masters behind that are often just members of the intelligence community doing things. I mean, we know we know they orchestrated the coup in Iran. Uh, we know we know they were involved in uh, they were likely involved involved in Ukraine in the Orange Revolution in Ukraine. Um, they were involved in Libya. Uh, they're just they're, they're like involved Syria. in yeah. Syria. Yeah, I mean, just yeah, uh, yeah. And, and and you know they trained Bin Laden, which mm-hmm. which it seems it seems kind of a I sometimes you, you used to try and say that in a more nuanced way because it seems outrageous to say, but no, they just they trained Bin Laden. Uh, like it's no nuance is really required there. They trained Bin Laden, uh-huh. uh, and you know, granted, they didn't train him to attack America, but right. you know, they they certainly yeah. helped him. So. Yeah, I mean, the war on terror goes back to 1979, and it was. The seeds were planted by our, you know, the United States government. Again, not with nine eleven in mind. You know, yep. uh, let's create this, uh, fertilize this toxic uh, ideology, and turn it on the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. Well, uh, you know, don't add water. You know, it just <laughs> uh, and grew from there. <laughs> he created a monster, and right, now you're shocked yeah. that he's attacking you. When right, it's done and then and then the monster pointed at that. Yeah. 
<laughs> then the mantra becomes the justification for your bigger budget, more power, right. you know, and it's this right. treadmill uh, that that benefits them. Yeah. Uh, and Juliet, unless you have any more on this topic, I want to switch to a different topic. Um, no, I was just going to say it's funny. Uh, earlier today I saw, oh gosh, I always blank on this guy's name. Um, former CIA director John Brennan was on CNN saying that the most likely suspect in the Nord Stream pipeline sabotage is Russia. And they, it was a, it was a lengthy segment. It was about five minutes long. And it, I mean, just the way that the anchor is nodding and he's just like, yeah, obviously they did it. It's like, uh, here we go again. Like the intelligence community is pretty great at uh, selling a narrative. Yeah, before they would, media. and before they would take a reporter out to lunch or something like that, buy him lunch <laughs> and do all this kind of stuff. And now, yeah, you know, they get to Brennan just gets to go right on mic up and collect a check to right. to put that stuff out there without any credible, even uh, devil's advocate kind of questions by the journalists. It's exactly. Just, Here's your time to talk. Oh, okay, <laughs> you know, and it, it must be credible because um, right. CIA's never lied to us before. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, you guys are reminding me of um, a different way in which the right tends to look at. So a lot of people will talk about the um, Yuri Bezmenov videos from the 80s, right? Yuri Bezmenov was a former KGB officer. He, he, he defected and he gave a lot of talks about um, the, how the KGB operated. And one of his one of his main points was that, you know, it, it doesn't do the James Bond kind of stuff. They're, they're pro predominantly, they're focused on ideological subversion. And this is a way to basically sway opinions about things over time and, and set narrative, you know, get narratives moving and, and, and construct frameworks. And like, this is, this is what most of their budget went to, which is, you know, this kind of psych it's, I'll call it psychological warfare, but it's, it's, it's he called that ideological subversion and and you know a lot of conservatives nod their head and say yes this is what it's just like what the left is doing or that soviet union we were dealing with remnants of that today and look how we're under attack and blah 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 well uh and and we're also they're also able to look into russia and say well you can't trust the russian people are getting bad information because it's this you know it's the russian security apparatus that's you know doing all this propaganda and blah blah, blah. and then and then you say okay great let's talk about america's <laughs> intelligence agencies in America's state. It's like, oh no, they don't, we don't, that, I'm sure they have no idea about ideological subversion. That's not at all on there. It's 95% of Russia's security apparatus's budget, but it's completely not something that we have to worry about with our agencies at all. Like Carter, we're the good guys. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh. We would never do anything like that. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's a really good point though. Um, I, I, brought that up recently in a conversation where they were like, well, you can't trust anything Russia says or because, you know, their media is propaganda. And I was like, seriously, at this, like this point in time, we're pretending that ours isn't <laughs> the mainstream media is propaganda, government hand fed propaganda straight to the masses. So, but it's just funny because I think a lot of people still have that attitude like oh russia's bad and you know they're controlling everything that their population 
hears, but they don't realize we're kind of in the same boat here. Mm -hmm. I'm just one more thing before I'm going to make an argument. I think it's worse here. And and here's my argument. Um, My I don't know about Russia specifically, so I'm going to use China as an example. My wife is native born Chinese. Um, She spends a lot of time in China still. She has business in China. Obviously, China is free press is not in the vernacular in China, right? It's not not part of the vocabulary, right? But you know what that means? Every semi-educated Chinese person in all of the major cities knows damn well they're being lied to. They don't trust anything that's being said because they know it's a lie because they know they're not living under a free – there's no illusion – about a free press. They're like, well, of course we can't say this. Oh, you can't say that on WeChat. Oh, of course they're not they're gonna take that article down. I mean, there's a whole there's a whole culture of when an article is shared around on social media, if it's on the edge, everyone's like, we read it now because it's gonna be down. We all know they're gonna like it's it's a it's they all know, and I think knowing actually is better than the situation in in which where we find ourselves, where we we think that. Oh well, we have a free press. It's cool. because now we're duped. They're less duped than we are, right? I would say. Yeah, it's like truth and labeling, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, mm-hmm. They know they know what the equation is over there. Whereas people here, no matter how many times you take that, you know how many times I sound like George Bush that time when he said, "Fool me once, trick me." Did you ever see that video? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. I forget exactly what he said, but it, it must was be because I'm in fumble. Texas. <laughs> yeah. Fool me. You can't get fooled again. Um, but, but it's like no matter how many times the American public sees that they've been lied to, right? It's always, and that's part of the equation. You know, you wait until mm-hmm. the, the the truth comes out at a comfortable time distance later. A lot of the times. Um, I mean, we still don't have the JFK files out, you know, whatever happened there. Um, right. Um, you know, Gulf of Tonkin or WMD. And it, it's always, there's always some time span that goes between them such that people think, oh, well, that, that kind of stuff used to happen. They don't realize it's always right. happening. And that just, happened last week, but not this week. Yeah. That's right. Right. <laughs> yeah. They lied all over here, but there's no way they're lying about this. No yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and actually, and they don't even have to change personnel. Oh, I'm sure the NSA was horrible when when Snowden released that, but it's it's different now. It's like it's and, the same people. And for more on that, let's talk to James Clapper, <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. former yeah. former director of national intelligence. Yeah, yeah. And the neocons, the same thing. I mean, how, all these disastrous foreign policy interventions. And you know, for oh, for more on what we should do in Syria, let's talk to Bill Crystal. You know, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's just the same dynamic. These people, there's just no consequence. Yeah. You know, someone else in chat uh, uh, said <laughs> jokingly, I trust the Kiwi lady that said she's the one source for truthful information. I don't know if you saw that's Jacinda Arden, I think, from New Zealand. I don't know if you remember that clip that was going around, but uh, that was her message during COVID. Like, only we have the truthful information. She's um, a particularly dystopian figure in all this <laughs> that we live with is. now because of the delivery and the packaging, you know, it comes from in this gentle voice, <laughs> you know, from, yep. uh, her delivery is such mm-hmm. that, uh, um, like it's sinister inside, but it's wrapped up in, uh, the friendly woman next door kind of thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think actually there's a lot of that. I think there's a, yeah. the, 
the they seldom act like they seldom look and act like uh, a failed German artist, right? Like they don't. That's not how they. <laughs> or a bond. That's not villain. how they behave. Right. Yeah, they they right. they look like sweet little nice right. people who just mean well and they've got lots of platitudes and oh by and the way, here's some authority. You just you just stay in your bubbles with her her accent, you know. <laughs> right. It's just yes. like oh yeah, yeah. So I have to just it's stay like in the your Mary bubbles, Poppins citizen. of dictatorship. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. Here's <laughs> a spoonful of sugar with your authoritarianism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we we go for it. We uh. Yes. At least the New Zealanders did, I guess. Um, I want to talk about actually an article that you wrote at the end of July, which I know is a couple months old, but uh, it's something that I think you you make a really great point about it, and this is uh, about the fentanyl crisis. Mm. And a point that you you make it's you know a lot of time I'll you know a lot of us will argue against the drug war, and there's moral arguments. You know, government shouldn't be able to tell you what's put in your body. Blah blah blah. That falls on deaf ears for a lot of people who are like, yeah, but heroin's bad or whatever. Um, uh, I, I mean, I'll, I still make the argument, but it doesn't always work. Uh, then you can try and make an argument about the logistical failure of the drug war. Like, hey, it's gotten – we spent a lot of money. There's a lot of people in jail. It's gotten a lot worse. They haven't solved the problem. They can't even keep heroin out of prison. How are they going to keep it out of suburbs or whatever? Like, it's just – you know, you can make those arguments – you bring up um, you bring up a, another argument that I think is the iron law of prohibition uh, when you talk about fentanyl. I'm wondering if you can tell people tell people about this article and what your perspective on it is. There, yeah, yeah. The title is, uh, if I recall, is uh, the fentanyl crisis brought to you by drug prohibition. Yes, and um, basically, it's just kind of laying out the fact that. Uh, what we're seeing with fentanyl, which is god awful, um, overdose deaths in uh, uh, mass, um, it's a it's a byproduct of the war on terror. I mean, excuse me, a related, a related, possibly maybe a byproduct of uh, that as well. Who knows? Yeah, it's true. A related, <laughs> phony, counterproductive war. Um, uh, it's a byproduct of the war on drugs. It's you know, it's the solution isn't more war on drugs. It's actually less, and you know that's. A lot of what I write about is trying to help people understand some things that are counterintuitive but are true, and that's the case here. Like you said, people think fentanyl's bad, so we have to make it illegal. You know, or heroin's bad. You know, we've got to make it illegal and search people for it and all that kind of stuff, not realizing the consequence. And uh, the Iron Law of Prohibition um, suggests that uh, you know the more you uh, when you illegalize a substance. Um, all you do is set forth into motion a set of incentives that leads the prohibited item, uh, the nature of that prohibited item, to become more concentrated and more deadly and more portable. Because that's really what we're talking about, especially where uh, drugs are concerned. So you ramp up the war on drugs such that you're able to you know, really do th you know, more and more thorough searches of of trucks at the border or, you know, planes coming in, shipping containers, all that kind of stuff. What you're doing is incentivizing uh, people to traffic in drugs that are much more concentrated and thus can fit, you know, in a, in a smaller, smaller container and are thus more easily smuggleable. smuggleable. And um, we've seen this play out. Um, there's so many examples of it. Um, going, uh, going back to alcohol prohibition. 
um, where uh, you know, if, if it's prohibited to produce and, you know, cart alcohol around, what do you incentivize to do? You're going to make the most concentrated type possible, uh, uh, grain alcohol or whatever. And, uh, and that's what you're going to be transporting. And obviously grain alcohol is more dangerous than, uh, a beer. Um, uh, likewise, uh, this is a great chart here, uh, courtesy of it's, uh, listed there, but, um, yeah, so you see, Beer and wine, you know, leads you to more concentrated things. Um, look at opium, you know, rather just regular opium. Then you go to heroin, and then you, from that you go to the, the fentanyl, um, uh, cocaine. You know, powder is easily more easily transportable than the leaves and that type of stuff. And then uh, you know, cracks even more concentrated than that. And so we see the same thing uh, uh, with uh, with fentanyl. So it's it's yep. more deadly. So the the we can't judge policies by their intentions, no matter what type of public policy we're talking about. You have to judge it by the consequences. And that's what people fail to do. You know, they think, like you said in your little example, you know, people say drugs are bad, right? So they've got to be illegal. It's, it's just people want to put that stamp on it. Like they see a law almost as standing up and making a societal statement about something, you know, as a moral, we're not statement for that. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, um, um, but that's not how you have to judge policy. You have to judge it by the consequences. And the consequences of prohibition, whether it's alcohol or drugs or uh, anything else, um, it, it leads to more more harm than good. Uh-huh. I mean, marijuana. Nobody uh, overdose. Nobody's ever overdosed from marijuana. How many people? How many people have died in the war on drugs? Whether it's in uh, you know, violence between police and uh, perpetrators, or whether it's violence among uh, uh, people in the drug trade, um, high speed pursuits of somebody with, you know, marijuana, <laughs> you know, uh, there's so much more harm has come from, you know, for, for example, from that. And we see the same thing here. And, you know, in my article, I point out, I can't remember the name of the substance, but there's already something that's even more concentrated than, uh, fentanyl. ISO, I think right. was, it was, okay. yeah. 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 Um, and so we see that, you know, the, the same dynamic playing out. And so, you know, uh, yeah, just another example of one of my favorite quotes, which is, uh, government is a disease masquerading as its own cure. I think it's Robert Lefebvre who said that. It's a great quote. Chat, yeah. box. Chat guys can check us on that. Um, but yeah, government is a disease masquerading as its own cure. And you, and you see that over and over again. And the war on drugs is a, uh, a phenomenal example where uh, uh, it causes more problems than, than you know, the policies actually actually help solve yeah i mean one of the reasons that i one of the things i like about the the iron law of prohibition which i hadn't heard of before is um you know it encourages you to think about which which almost no one does whenever they pass a law uh incentives everything i'm not saying everything is economics but everything is incentive driven and actually economics is a good model to look like supply and demand. They're good models to use right. sometimes. Um, and if you just think for a moment about incentives, you realize like, well, yeah, if, if I had to be on the black market smuggling drugs, well, a little micro dot that could kill a hundred million people would be the best drug I could think of. Like <laughs> let's develop and transport that one so we can, you know, cut like, it up into little tiny pieces it. and yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, so, uh, people tend to think in a very 
static. I, I view uh, policy analysis tends to be extremely static. This is the way things are now. And I'm going to take my magic marker and cross out the things over here by making them illegal or whatever. It's like, okay, but that's not what you're doing. You're you're simply distorting the, the dynamics, the interpersonal and economic dynamics of of people's relationship, of, of society. And you got to ask yourself, well, what's that distortion going to do? Right. Well, uh, you know, people that might just be growing marijuana in their backyard suddenly have to maybe arm themselves. And like the, now they've got to they've got to enforce their own laws because they can't go to the cops and say he stole my pot. You now you got to go shoot the guy yourself because he's like whatever. Like so you've got that whole dynamic. Now, you well, you better be breeding for, you know, um, more potent strains because you can't just it's, it, you know, transportation costs really matter because the overhead is includes all of the evasion of security like all that stuff happens it's right. com- entirely predictable you're right um but we just yeah, and, and the more and the more difficult you make to smuggle it then on top of all that then the price goes up which encourages mm-hmm. more innovation you know uh, markets right. are markets you know, whether it's a legit open legal market or a black market markets are markets and you've got all like it's a huge point you just made about incentives and and weighing that um and there's two books I'd recommend people read just to kind of get your mind thinking in that way. Um, uh, one would be Basic Economics by Thomas Sowell. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other is Hazlitt's classic book. <laughs> I don't remember Hazlitt's classic book. I don't think Economics in One Lesson. Economics in One Lesson. Yeah. Okay. By, uh, Hazlitt. Uh, if you read those two books, it's almost from an economical point of view. And they're not. I think for a lot of people, if they hear, oh, who wants me to read a book about economics, these books don't, it's not dense because this is uh, real economics. It's talking about incentives and all, all the types of things we're talking about here. Um, so they're very approachable books, especially uh, uh, economics in uh, one lesson, um, real okay. easy reading. But Easier read those- than von Mises. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but re- read those books and you, uh, you almost feel like you've – gone into the matrix and you understand it now because you start thinking just exactly what you were just saying. You, you start understanding what incentives, the role of incentives in all of the above, you know, in, our, in all of our interactions and all our policies. Yeah. yeah. And, and just to reinforce another point you made is that people always impose policies without trying to anticipate what, what are those follow on in, incentives created by that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's very sophomore. It's it's very it's like it's it's really. I've always struggled with why it's so. It's such a childish way to view the world. Like, is this static like piece of paper? And like, here's the interactions, and we're just gonna do this. It's like what I, I, I it almost blows my mind sometimes that that's the that's the extent of people's thinking about a lot of these things. It's like. Right. Don't and, like that. Make 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 illegal. Like, right, and not just people on the street. You know, people who are in power and have authority right. over yeah. our lives. That type of thing. Um, uh, one of the quintessential examples of that type of static thinking, that, to use your term, is uh, when Congress said, "Oh, we're going to stick it to the rich." I think this is back in the early '90s. We're going to we're going to stick it to the rich, and we're going to put a luxury tax on yachts. <laughs> right. Right. This darn. Yep. Monopoly guys with their top yeah. hats yeah. <laughs> and monocles, yachts and monocles. <laughs> we'll stick it to them. So, so they impose this really, you know, hefty luxury tax on yachts. Static thinking, right? Great, right. we're going to collect a lot of their more of their money. 
Um, well, what happened? Wealthy people yep. got Why wealthy, a lot of them because they make judicious <laughs> decisions about their money, right? Um, so the yacht business dries up. Well, and so what happens? Yacht, the con- guys in the construction yard are laid off. Right. You know, right. it, That's right. a great example, though, of, uh, of that static thinking. Yeah. Yeah, it's also, I mean, we don't have to get too deep into to monetary policies, but it's also one of the things that I think is one of the, the least noticed costs of a lot of our economic policy, which is, um, and, and something that no one ever talks about when they talk about raising taxes on the rich or taxing wealth or any, or, or interest rates or anything, um, which is the money that people have amassed the wealth that they have in savings accounts or if you're wealthy it's usually not in a savings account it might be you know even if it's liquid it might be in in a money market account briefly but you know it's in stocks or whatever but some sort of liquid asset that that money is used it is the it's the foundation for poorer people to borrow not poor people necessarily it depends on the business but like for other people to borrow and then generate economic activity with. If you want to start a business you and you need a loan, which happens all the time, well, the availability of rich people's bank accounts is what matters to you. Like, that needs to be there. If you suck that away and then pretend that there's no consequence to people who actually weren't directly affected, you're just a moron. Like, of course that – it affects the entire economy. Like, right. of course it does. If you take a trillion dollars out of Wall Street, as much as I hate a lot of Wall Street, if you take a trillion dollars out of, you know, various funds, like, I, that affects people's ability to, I mean, you, that money is not there to loan. So right. businesses I'm, I'm that, reminded. I'm reminded of the uh, picture I saw of a edgy woman in a coffee cafe with her laptop, her, her nice – late generation Apple laptop with a sticker on it that says stamp out capitalism. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Um, you're right. I mean, uh, there's, there's a neat, uh, on YouTube, uh, Milton Friedman, I think he's on the Donahue show and he's kind of addressing this question because, uh, somebody from the audience just kind of wants to put more taxes on the rich and take their money. And, and he, he just kind of helps her through the thinking. Now, what, what do people, do, what do those, what do you think those people do with their money? You know, do they put it in a mattress? You know, no, it's like you said, it's you're invested. And, you know, capitalism, you know, it's about capital. It's about uh, money available for lending, money available for uh, investment in uh, launching new companies, you know, equity, stock, shares, that type of thing. Um, that allows for the investment in uh, plants, machinery, things that increase productivity. Increased productivity is what raises all of our standard of living by making you know, the power of this computer and the price of it, you know, much less than it was, you know, 20 years ago, for example. Um, yep. So, yeah, people just don't have that fundamental understanding of uh, economics. This is why I think everyone should start a company, especially uh, a punk company for which you need to raise venture capital. And I hate raising venture capital, and I actually don't like starting companies like that. But uh, you t- certainly get you understand really quickly. Like I was, uh, I was an entrepreneur, and then I went into the venture capital space, and then I left the whole thing because I didn't like it. But uh, you certainly understand at that point, like, oh, some dude with an idea <laughs> needs to, needs some money. He's got to borrow it from somewhere or to get get it as investment. 
that might be wealthy individuals. It might be venture capital, but they get their money from somewhere. Like venture capital companies get their money from somewhere. Those are larger funds. Like it all. So, you know, when you talk about like, oh, we're only going to hit the, the ultra rich. It's like, okay, but that affects the dudes trying to start a little software company. Right. Or work, for, or work for that or work for that company uh-huh. or just yeah, even have a job exactly. at that company. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no, and there's, and this one, this one, and there's no empathy for the risk involved. Right. There's there's no empathy for the fact that whether it's that, you know, individual person opening the restaurant or, you know, uh, starting some small company and you know, putting, even if they're getting outside capital, they probably are going to start with their own money for, you know, that type of stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm empathetically terrified on behalf of every new restaurant I see (laughs) in the neighborhood, like, because I know the, the risk that they're taking and the, Mm -hmm. you know, survival rate and then you know with that with those risks that they take which ultimately benefit all of us then there should be rewards and i'm kind of indifferent to how big those rewards are you know it's not yeah yeah no there's there's definitely a lack of appreciation there's a you you didn't build that kind of attitude yeah um and there's a lack of appreciation yeah um you know my wife and i have this conversation all the time because we're both entrepreneurs and We've, we sit down once in a while and say to ourselves, like, you know, would we be just better off and happier if we just were in Silicon Valley? We could both make, you know, a quarter of a million dollars a year just, like, working for Google or whatever. And, like, <laughs> eh, you know, yeah, we'll probably have to work some overtime, you know, be, be tough job maybe. But, like, wouldn't that be so much easier than being the only guy, like, continually be like, oh, start another company. Like, I'm the guy sweeping the floor and, like, or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Like, constantly being, losing money at the beginning, risking stuff, like, having all the anxiety. Um, I mean, we, we both just, you know, personally, we decided that we were both just pathological and couldn't help it. But uh, <laughs> it's it's not, it's not like a, it's not an easy thing. And, and you, people only see the successes they only see Mark Zuckerberg after he's got 18 private jets and and whatever, and then and then they they get all indignant and upset about his wealth and blah blah blah. But they don't see the the 99 or 9,999 other entrepreneurs who never got to be Mark Zuckerberg right. uh, and lost their house and got <laughs> divorced and worked their ass off and failed a million times and like you know lost their kid's college fund or whatever. Like that kind of stuff happens all the time. I don't know where I'm going with that. No, I agree. Yeah. All right. Let me, let me ask you, uh, let me ask you the other question, which is what, is there another story that we should be paying attention to that we, that we haven't been paying attention to? Uh, yeah, there's a, a movement afoot that I wrote about uh, last month at starkrealities.substack.com, uh, um, which is about the, uh, a movement to bring about a uh, convention for the consideration of new, amendments to the constitution and recently they hit the uh uh in one of the i guess the foremost group that's pursuing this um convention convention of states action um uh kind of hit a milestone where they're more than halfway to having the number of states necessary on board to do this i mean under article five of the constitution uh constitutional amendments can originate with congress and then be ratified by the states and that's how all of our you know, amendments have pretty much happened ever since the Bill of Rights. Um, but the uh, another avenue which has never, you know, brought about an actual amendment, it's been used, but not all the way, you know, to the point where it, could, you know, where it was successful, um, is one where the 
uh, states can call for a convention. And you need uh, 34 states to do that, and they're at 19 now. And this is a the, the most the primary movement on this is led by is a you know, conservative right wing type uh, movement, um, with a focus on uh, having a convention that they want to have uh, confined to discussing and proposing amendments about limiting the uh, power of the federal government, uh, you know, spending power that type of thing, term limits. Um, uh, these types of things. They've got a you know, little model language that the uh, state legislatures can use to do that. Um, so it's kind of this interesting thing that's going on. Like I said, four states alone just did it this year. So there's this sense of momentum uh, behind this movement that's going on. Um, you, got, you have to get to 34 states. Again, this is, this is coming from the Republican side uh, and you know, some Libertarian side um, that... Uh, and I think the Republicans control outright 30 of the state legislatures. So if you kind of do the math, you know, it's starting to become more and more feasible that something like this um, could come about. And it's very controversial even among uh, conservatives. There's people who are absolutely adamantly opposed to this on the right wing, like the John Birch Society, that type of thing. There's, there's people who think uh, this would be a Pandora's box that you wouldn't be able to confine the nature of the uh, – Amendments, even though you know, they're trying to delineate what the uh, uh, scope would be. This is a map uh, inside that's uh, in my article as well that uh, shows you kind of the progress so far to date. Uh, the green states having you know, gone all the way. Um, yep. Yellow passed in one chamber and blue. Blue means, you know, there's people proposing or there's something on the floor of, of their legislature. Um, uh, interesting, it's the legislature's call for these, period. The governors have no effect. So it's not like uh, mm-hmm. not like the Colorado legislature does it and then they, the governor could veto it. It's not that at all. The legislature gets to speak. They're the ones with the voice on this. So that's an interesting uh, mm. dynamic as well. So I'm, I'm skeptical of it. <laughs> and are, well, first of all, are you skeptical? Of it? Like, what, what, are the, what are the pluses and minuses you see here? I see. I just see. I see pretty much all pluses, just about. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I'm. I'm not. Uh, I don't think it's imminent. Like it will happen that this convention will come about anytime soon. Um, to me, there's a, a number of pluses. There can be pluses even without a convention being called. If you start cresting to where you've got 30 states out of 34 that you need um, on board wanting to propose amendments to limit. Uh, the fed- power of the federal government, their spending, this type of stuff, you start to have this, uh, it's like the bow wave ahead of you, you know, effect on Washington. Uh, we're, we've seen this before with uh, other amendment uh, drives where the mere fact that it was becoming close to becoming a reality or a, uh, an amendment might be coming from the states led the uh, national government to like maybe accommodate that a little bit. So there could be that dynamic to some extent. Um, but if we actually get to a convention, um, you know, people are, are very fearful of what might come out of it. Like, what's hmm. what could what amendment could be created out of this process? Well, you have to have, and and I, I, it's hard for me to get very worried about that because so you need thirty four to call the convention. Then the convention meets. 
they say, okay, here's our proposed amendment or amend set of amendments. Okay, once they do that, then it goes back to the states and either the state legislature has to approve it or you have a ratifying convention in each state to approve it. Either way, now you need 38. So you need a 34 to even have this convention. You need 38 to then uh, adopt this for, for it to become part of the Constitution. So to me, you know, it's, it's, and it's the reason why that process exists, that puts a break on extreme type proposals, right? You've mm -hmm. got to have this pretty wide consensus among a, you know, a big part of the, uh, of the states to, uh, to get something through. So I think you know, that's a moderating influence. If you look at one of the uh, proposals that uh, is at the forefront of the uh, Convention of States action, their messaging and all that kind of stuff, it's term limits. Yep. Well, you, you pull term limits and you get amens across the political spectrum. There's actually reasons to think term limits may not be such a great idea. We could talk about that separately. But um, sure. that's an example of the fact that, you know, probably the most likely thing to come out of one of those conventions would probably be that, which is you know, seen as very uh, popular and not, uh, not extreme there, you know, I think there's, there's potential drawbacks to it, but, um, and if you look at the other things, the convention of states action, they're very serious about this, very organized. They had a mock convention where they brought in people from all, you know, representatives and did their own mock amendment convention, 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 uh, at mm -hmm. I think college of William and Mary last year or two years ago. And it was neat to see, okay, what did they come out with? You know, what did these people end up proposing? Johnny on this Here's spot. some stuff. Yeah. So you see term limits uh, requiring a two-thirds vote of the House and Senate to increase the public debt, so a break on debt, uh, restoring the Commerce Clause to its original intent. I mean, few things have done more destruction to the original nature of the United States of America than the Supreme Court's absolutely uh, delusional, <laughs> willing, willfully delusional interpretation of the Commerce Clause. I mean, something that entirely didn't, and that allows the federal government to regulate you know, pretty much every aspect of our life. Um, the repeal of the income tax, that's a... Uh, I particularly like this uh, next to last bullet. Uh, giving states by a three-fifths vote the power to negate any federal law. That's an interesting one, yeah. Um, so I look at this list and I get... <laughs> I get excited about you know just thinking about the uh, prospect of that because because i mean if, if you look at that one particularly you're, you're seeing uh a desire to restore balance uh -huh. wait does to, this mean that any particular state could decide not to do it if three-fifths of their population or does it mean three-fifths of the states get together three-fifths of the states we're negating this law yep so okay. you have three-fifths of the states all say hey we don't think you know, whatever the law might be. Yeah, we, we want to negate that law. The NSA should um, have a budget, for example. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. <laughs> Three-fifths of states think there should be no um, mass surveillance, you know, no surveillance mm -hmm. of U.S. citizens or, you know. Um, Patriot Act, should, something yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. Something like anything. Yeah, think about it. Um, you know, that's, I, that's to me one of the most, you know, attractive ones, if you will, uh, because if it, it addresses the, you know, the, the total imbalance that's, that's happened since the start of the country. You know, the country came together as, I mean, the United States Constitution was formed in such a way that you had uh, independent states. And we now think of the word state as being a political subdivision 
but it's really, you know, the term states at the time and, you know, now should mean, um, you know, a truly bona fide independent state like France is a state, Delaware is a state. Um, mm-hmm. So you had, you know, uh, these states coming together and they decided to create this federal government, which had limited powers. Um, and they were kind of creating this entity uh, to serve them, right? To uh, Like the EU. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I hate to use but that with, example. With, but with like, limits, you know, but with limits, yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. So where the states have sovereignty, uh, you know, the 10th Amendment says that any power not given to the federal government is then assumed to be, you know, the, uh, you know, the uh, purview of the individual states or the people. Um, you know, there's no basis for, of, in, again, the great majority of what the federal government does, there's no you know, constitutional basis for it. Um, right. And so this kind of restores that to give the states, you know, a check on uh, what exactly the government, federal government's doing. They, uh, be, you know, kind of a veto power, if you will, over, over what that, because that, Federal entity is supposed to be really subservient in a way to the states, you know, that it's there to perform certain functions uh, for all the mutual benefit of them, but not to be this colossal entity that, you know, through the Commerce Clause interpretations and other things, uh, uh, you know, controls so many aspects of our lives that the framers would... uh, I mean, it's a federal law. I saw this recently. It's a federal law for a uh, a cherry pie more than four inches in diameter to be called a tart. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's a federal law. I mean, run that. T- tell that to Madison. James but you can Madison. call Kardashians tarts, right? That's still okay. <laughs> I just wanted. To- <laughs> Sorry. All right. That's kind of one of my favorite examples, though. I mean, tell James Madison that that's the, what the federal government's involving themselves in. Yeah. When they're just supposed that, to be. What the Commerce Clause meant was tart regulation. Right. Right. <laughs> and the government well, gets I, to control how much food you grow on your own land. You know, that's one of the early right. Supreme Court cases that drove, drove us to where right. we are now. Yeah. So, okay. Let me – I like the idea. So one thing I like is this idea of more ways in which we can ignore federal laws. So that's a good that's a good thing. Um, so giving more avenues for that is great. Um, I do I do share a little bit of the. I guess you said it was the John Birch Society that that was worried about this, but I do I do share some concern that we are in a political environment now in which uh, very few people are a relatively small number of the population is actually adamantly wanting states' rights. Most of the population is trying to fight over the gun in the room in Washington (laughs) so they can point it at everyone else. Uh, And so, you know, calling together a convention, uh, my concern is it turns into a brawl over who points the gun at whom, not 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 a conversation of like, Let's stop pointing. Let, let's give power back to the states. But like, hey, what what, what can we what can we do? Right. And things like the Second Amendment, just as an example. And I know you brought this up in your article, but the Second Amendment, as as much as the left will say it's not clear about this and it doesn't mean that and blah blah blah, blah, blah. it's it's one of the most clearly written and powerful amendments. It's more powerful than the first. The first says Congress shall make no law. The second one says shall not be infringed. I mean, it's stronger. It is. It's very, very clear. The only thing that muddies the waters is this, the, the, the first clause, which yeah. A, 
is 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 irrelevant in terms of effect uh, because it's a explanation. It's an explanation. This oh, thing wow. being true, here's the here's the rule that whatever the thing is, the rule doesn't change. But okay, right. uh, and it's misinterpreted. But it's one of the clearest ones. I find it hard to believe that a group of states would get together and uh, if they were going to touch that, I, they couldn't make it better, really. Right. Uh, that That's basically impossible. And I do see a lot of even conservative states. There's a lot of there's a lot of this Aristotelian mean fallacy, this golden mean fallacy of like, well, let's compromise. What if the Second Amendment says you can't have automatic weapons, but let's let's rewrite it so that to make it clear that you can hunt. It's like <laughs> I don't I don't want it to be clear that you can hunt. That's not what it says. Right. And I think a lot of the red states, um, I don't trust the red states to be principled. It's a very principled amendment, and that's just one of them. Right. Uh, it's a very mm-hmm. principled amendment. And I find it hard to believe that anything that a convention would come up would be principled in any way. Right. Um, well, first of all, the convention would not be compelled to create any amendment. It's a convention no, to, propose, I know, I know. to yeah. propose them. So the more it turns into a rock fight in there, well, then the less chance that anything's going to come out of it. So, but I mean, I, I, I can see your point. And, and while I said I, you know, I kind of go like this at the list, I, you know, I do. I, uh, sure. I try to keep my eyes open to like you on uh, what could go wrong here. Um, so, I mean, if, if you had that convention right after a, a dreadful gun shooting, for example, you know, what, Which what could happen? I'm not saying could be orchestrated by <laughs> certain members of the deep state, but could be. Some might say that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <the>, uh, <laughs> Um, hey, what great but, timing! But if it did happen in the wake of something like that, uh, yeah, you could see that. But then, of course, then it goes out to uh, thirty for thirty-eight states approval. But yeah, so there is a bit of a uh, uh, Pandora's box possibility on some of these things. Um, at the same time, I think sometimes, what's the worst case scenario? A real some really terrible amendment comes out of there that some states are just absolutely adamant against but somehow it makes it through the process well then to me that might just incentivize uh secessions which maybe i think could be a good thing <laughs> yeah <laughs> well, know, I'm, think, I'm with you on that <laughs> right, right. so 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 if you look yeah. at that kind of worst case scenario then maybe it actually helps accelerate a uh right sizing of the union <laughs> or <laughs> that's you know. that's a good point that's a, that's a yeah that yeah. I'll, I'll i guess that I, that's I, a good point and I'm so uh, I'm so fatalistic about the trajectory of the country from a liberties point of view and an economics point of view and the financials of the federal government and the dollar and so forth um, that uh, it's almost like a what have we got to lose kind of thing when I look at the possibility sure. of a constitutional convention um, and some people yeah. would say you know, quite a bit depending on the way it plays out you know maybe you're not you're not seceded and you've got a uh, even more muscular government somehow coming out of it. Um, doesn't seem like that would be the case when the driving force, if this convention happened, would be 34 states who want to limit the the, the federal government. But and, and you know, I, I I mentioned that the most powerful movement right now is led by uh, re, you know, Republicans, conservatives. Um, there have been you know movements from all stripes. Um, what's his name? Sank. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. From the Uyghur. Young Turk. Oh, yeah. Um, yep. Yeah, he's. I think, I think he created a pack and everything yeah. to uh, uh, 
try to counteract the Citizens United decision and call a constitutional convention about um, campaign finance and that type of thing. Um, he's nowhere near the progress of this other group. But the you know, point being, it's not a uh, solely a conservative idea. I mean, sure. if you think about it, this is a uh, – I mean, this was a mechanism that the founders created very deliberately. Mm-hmm. You know, for the very reasons that we're talking about, to give the states some power to assert themselves if the – you know. The, if the you know, federal government's gone wrong or if, you know, they realize, hey, the Constitution, we need to edit this thing or, you know, that type of thing. Um, and, you know, never been used. A couple hundred years. So people, it's not like we found some rusty hypodermic needle <laughs> and right. we want to use it. You know, it's like this is a legitimate tool that the founders, I think, wisely uh, created and uh, we shouldn't necessarily uh, shy away from it. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, like, I always, I'm always impressed by things like this, where they created this new thing. It had really just never been tried before. They're like, we're going for it. And they still were able to foresee problems that are popping up hundreds of years later. I mean, we've never had to call a convention of the states, but we're approaching a place where I think, you know, it's fair to say that there are large, I mean, maybe the majority of the population is not entirely happy with the way things are going (laughs) in DC. And we really don't have any other way to stop them. I mean, sure. Voting. If they don't pass a bunch of laws we hate before the next election cycle, you know, so just having this, this is kind of a balance on the federal government going wild, which we're seeing. Um, but it's funny that this got brought up because I just recently even heard of this and I thought it was really interesting and in that they have 19 states. That's not bad. I mean, it's something. Um, so I was looking it up and I Googled it because I was <laughs> I used the wrong browser. So I used Google actually to look it up. And the first result. Carter is me- not pleased. Google is like, no such thing exists, Julia. Uh, So it takes me to this website called commoncause.org, and it's an anti-Article 5 convention group. And, I mean, they're, you know, totally hysterical about it. But I was like, that's very interesting that there's already an organization to counter something no one's ever heard of. And I went and looked into the funding Guess who the number one funder is for this? The George Atlantic Soros. Council. Oh, George Soros. There we go. I was going to guess Soros. Yeah, I was going to guess better. Soros. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We'll give you yeah. credit for your. I was going to guess Carter. <laughs> yeah. No, I would. I, I was going to say Soros. I believe and you. Gates Incredible. Was be my number two. Yeah. Uh, but um, that's funny. Yeah, I mean, he's looking uh, out there. Yeah, he, he just cares. He. That's all it is. <laughs> is he cares about us? I. I also have uh, a largely fatalistic view of the current configuration of America. So there is some sense of like, well, let's mix it up, I guess, and and see what happens. Um, our, the guy, we have a show that's almost every week, I guess every week on Wednesday called Rebel Civics. And the guy who hosts that show on Unsafe Space used to be part of the Convention of States, used to be part of that, um, uh, that movement. And, and I think it did a bunch of stuff for them. And, uh, you know, I, my my cynicism. 
I'm trying not to be too much of a Debbie Downer, but part of my cynicism here is, uh, A, no one is as principled as they were in 1776 or or in the 80s, 1780s. Like the the the, uh, the idea that people would say the things that people like Madison or Jefferson said and have the kind of debate, like read the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist Papers. The the idea that that would be a discussion that we could even possibly have today is just ridiculous. It would it wouldn't happen. So the the population, especially the people who would be having this discussion, are starting from a starting point that's just already compromised. Um, and, you know, the Commerce Clause is one of these interesting things to me because one of the one of my catchphrases that I've been saying for years is like, they'll, they'll let you have the Constitution if they can have the dictionary. Um, <laughs> yeah. And like the Commerce Clause, I mean, well, we talked about the Second Amendment. We can also apply this to the Commerce Clause. It means whatever they want it to mean if they rewrite what words mean and interpret things however they want. And so how do you strengthen – a document is just a piece of paper. How do you strengthen – how do you stop the federal government from doing things when when you write shall not be infringed, they're not sure what that means? Or when you <laughs> write the Commerce Clause, they're like, oh, that means that I can regulate the size of cherry tarts. Like what <laughs> – like if that's what's going on, we're living in such a bizarro world. It's like Salvador Dali version of justice that you know of constitutional okay. review. That like, well, right. what I, what could you possibly do at this point? I mean, and I don't know. Maybe the answer is let's bring it to a head and you know separate <laughs> somehow. And maybe <laughs> this is a way to bring it to a head. But uh, that's kind of my that's kind of my frustration with all this. And I think like people that invest a lot of energy and like, oh well, we'll change the process through this thing. I'm like, I. Guys, look around. Look at your neighbors. That's not going to happen. <laughs> am I just too down? Am I too much of a Debbie Downer? I don't know. I mean, I mean, I believe my serious deep fatalism <laughs> and skepticism about everything. Um, but I guess I don't. Be, you know, I, I guess I applaud their effort. Um, yeah. That that I'm the same way. Yeah, like that nothing. To me, only good can come out of it. Like I said, if you have this rising tide of explicitly expressed state legislator discontent with the federal government to the point of, hey, we may start changing your rule book up there on Capitol Hill, you know, yep. might you have some some effect on that? Or just even just the drive itself has a sort of uh, civics lesson for all of us. And I don't mean about the mechanics of the Constitution, but just kind of driving conversations about Hey, maybe the state should have more say over, uh, hmm. you know, or veto power over federal law. This type of thing. I mean, like uh, Juliet pointed out, you know, people howl at that idea. Um, you know, for them, the idea of uh, any state autonomy, you know, they immediately go to the Civil War. <laughs> you know, it's right, you know. right, <laughs> right. Yeah, and you can't force people to use the right pronouns if it doesn't come from Washington or whatever. Like if, if you've got an agenda, it's like, well, yeah. you know, it's much easier. Yeah. If if you want to force your way on other people from the left or the right, it's much easier if there's only one giant gun and that's what you have to argue over who controls that. than like there's 50 little jurisdictions and I got to fight that battle everywhere. Cause it's going right. to be, you know, you might convince the people of Louisiana, but California or Alabama or Colorado or Idaho might be different. And, Hey, if you can just convince DC, you don't have to give a crap about any of those other right. people. Um, 
And so, of course, with abortion, we recently saw you know kind of the the opposite dynamic where mm-hmm. it is devolved down to the uh, you know the decision making on that issue is sent to the states, right. you know, for them to decide. Um, which you had people, uh, uh, you know, the pro-choice people saying, "Wow, we shouldn't have." Uh, six people in, in robes in Washington decide this, unelected people. Well, then they weren't deciding. It, it originally was decided right. in the fashion you're talking about. They said we're not going to decide it. They're actually democratizing <laughs> it by sending it out to the states for that decision. Right, yeah. you know, no matter how you feel about the issue, right. it's, giving, it's giving more authority to the state. We recently saw a Kansas referendum you know, on this where the you know, pro-life uh, forces prevailed. You know, in uh, in retaining whatever you know, permissions they had there in Kansas uh, on this issue, and you saw I saw a New York Times columnist, I think it was, characterize it as a in a repudiation of the Supreme Court. Kansas voters, it was not a repudiation. The Supreme no. Court said it's Kansas's choice. That's, I mean, <laughs> right, yeah. what, that's what they said. So it's not repudiating. Yeah. It's kind of just letting it be seen in action. You know what they were saying. So. Yeah, it's amazing how it's up to you is interpreted so horrifically. Um, <laughs> yes. Like, right. What do you mean it's up to us? How right. dare you? Like, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> if if you want a law, go pass it. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I admire the Founding Fathers quite a lot. Um, and I like Juliet, like you said, they, they planned for so many things. But I will say, uh, if, I, if I had a time machine and I could go whisper in, in Jefferson's ear – I would say, you know, you need to make it way, way easier to veto, repeal, refuse to like just ignore at legislation. You need to make it like, you know what? A state can voluntarily opt out of any like you just need to make it super easy so people can and say, nope. Hey, that whole thing that you're doing, we're not we're not part of it. It's not a right like saying no uh, should not be like passing new legislation should be really hard. Mm-hmm. And saying no to laws should be super easy. It should be like just trivially easy because no state's going to say, "Oh, we want murder." Like that's just not going to happen. Like you don't have to worry about that happening, <laughs> right? So what you need to worry about is the government growing, and you need to be states to be able to say, "No, we're not doing that." Like that new that TSA thing you guys are doing. No, <laughs> we're not. We're not part of that. That patriarch. Patriot Act thing? No. NSA, leave. <laughs> we're, we're not doing that. That's not our state. We're not doing that. I like I that. I, I wish we could. <laughs> Judson uh, Pinson in chat says, it's up to you equals fascism. Might as well. <laughs> you know, we, we missed a super chat earlier that I just want to. Uh, I don't think I can throw it up on screen anymore, but I have it here. Um, G Man says we have our annual government ethics training soon. We're supposed to report waste, fraud, and corruption, but I don't have time to report all that. <laughs> I, mean, just, I think you can just submit their budget back to them. <laughs> That's the best way to do it. It just hand them their just ask for a copy of the budget and then stick it in an envelope and mail it back. Here's my report. <laughs> all of the above. Um, <laughs> yeah, all of the above. All right, Brian. Any any final or Juliet? Any final thoughts um, that you want to leave the audience with? Ladies first. 
<laughs> um, gosh, I don't know. Just question everything all the time. I, I, I've had like a hit your head against the wall kind of moment yesterday talking to a friend and realizing that like she sees through certain things and then other things it's like oh, I mean what we were saying earlier like oh of course they're telling the truth this time right right <laughs> question everything all the time that's right. all I can say what's what's that is it um man I forget the name of that that rule but it's that if there's someone's law it's someone's Russian law, law? Like, uh, oh, Occam's Razor? No, the one where you 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 read <laughs> you read a piece of news that you know about, and you're like, "Oh, this is completely wrong." And then you flip the page, and you assume that the next piece of news that you don't know anything about is like accurate reporting. There's some uh, I forget the name of that law, but it, there's this like this you know when you I I mean we I think a lot of us have experienced that where you read something that it's, it's Noel's law. Beverly says it's Noel's law. Okay. Uh, I don't know, but I'm I'm reminded of that when you're talking about your friends, Juliet. It's uh -huh. like, oh, I I happen to know this issue really well, and everything they're saying is completely wrong. And I don't know this issue, so I assume everything they're saying is completely right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Brian, anything? Any? It's 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 uh it's it's to the man now. We're we're done with the ladies. <laughs> any? <laughs> Time for man talk. Let me man something. Yeah, man explain to the audience. <laughs> no, I guess I have I have an auxiliary law kind of thing, which is that every statement the federal government makes about foreign policy or national security should be considered false unless you actually are given proof that it's true. Like there should be no presumption whatsoever that any single thing they say. I mean, it could probably apply to uh, beyond just foreign policy and, and national security, but you know, I think especially there that mm -hmm. uh, the presumption is that it's uh, false. And yeah. I don't know, and I don't know who blew up the Nord Stream pipeline, but let me hold another discussion. But to probably just not Russia, but, if that's what but, they're saying. But to just assume <laughs> that okay, the intelligence community says this has all the hallmarks of Russia, you know, it's like right. I don't know. I mean, yeah. I don't know what kind of 4D chess could be going on out there, but uh, um, to me, the pipeline was their source of leverage, right? right. Yeah, like, I don't pull, understand. Pull down the that. sanctions regime, and hey, maybe the gas will flow again. I mean, the person who blew it up would seem to me to be saying, "Hey, let's take the you know game three. Let's take that card off the table. Let's just take that piece out completely." Um, so that's it. I don't. I don't know who who blew it up, but to leap to the uh, assumption that Russia would have done that is seems, seems uh, kind of silly. So big, I think it's big like John Brennan's uh, <laughs> conclusions with the deep skepticism, and know that he is uh, has a checkered past as far as telling the truth. Right. Yeah. I mean, if anyone has an incentive, it's probably the three letter agencies in the U.S. that we're talking about, like that. You know. Right. Or, or I don't know if Ukraine could have pulled that mission off by themselves same or, uh, or outsource it to somebody <laughs> some other nefarious country same thing exactly yeah um, <laughs> yeah yeah i mean yeah what's well, a whole nother topic but yeah it, it was just a really uh disturbing escalation um if we start putting pipelines and uh what could be next uh, uh tit for tat and out goes a uh internet cable or phone cable that's under the ocean or you know this types of things or uh, other pipelines yeah yeah, not good times for yeah. uh, rain right now. 
Well, it's a good. Uh, what do we call it? The uh, McGlinchey Law. What's yes, the? That's right. The, Absolutely. All right. It's, it's a good. It's a good law to remember. So um, in self-aggrandizing fashion, absolutely. Yeah, that's fine. It reminds me of the one that, that basically the the title of the legislation is, is the opposite of what yes, happened. That's right. right? Like the Patriot Act, or uh, yeah, yeah. It's 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 about yeah. Or these laws that you know I can't remember what their names are, but they've been like about oh we're going to free up the internet. You know, it's about <laughs> right, like, yes, exactly. Yeah. Net neutrality means not neutral. <laughs> inflation Reduction Act means yes. more inflation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's uh, unfortunately, I think that's um, par for the course. So, yeah. Brian, um, remind, I know you're not on social, but you do have a Substack. So remind people how they can find you and follow your work. Yes, I eschew social media because I've seen its uh, power to uh, sub suppress independent journalists like me. So yeah, just go straight to the source. That's the beauty of the new Substack model is you don't have to uh, follow a journalist and then hope that Twitter or Facebook or whoever actually lets you then see their posts. Um, yeah, just go to starkrealities.substack.com, starkrealities.substack.com. Um, I publish at least uh, once a calendar month. Um, my tagline is uh, invigoratingly unorthodox perspectives for intellectually honest readers. So that kind of gives you an idea of what I'm trying to do and kind of shake people's uh, maybe foundational beliefs or things that they've been led to believe about things or let them think about things in a different way. I, I take uh, satisfaction in alternatingly irritating the uh, conventional left and conventional right to, <laughs> who loved my last article, but then they hate my next headline. <laughs> Hopefully they keep reading. Yeah, uh, but yeah, just go there, sign up. Um, you can sign up for free uh, for the content. Uh, you'll get an a email directly to your inbox without uh, the uh, approval stamp of Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, right straight to it. Um, if you want to become a supporting subscriber, that's great too. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, feel free to just sign up and uh, uh, join me. Great. Well, thank you so much, Brian. I appreciate your time. And, yeah, I really enjoyed uh, the uh, discussion here. We'll have today. you back. A lot of fun. All right. Take great. care. Take care. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. It would be better for your health if you forgot what you just heard. That should be easy for someone of your intelligence. The following co-conspirators are hereby ordered to watch CNN. Experts agree that 87,000 new tax collectors will make inflation feel like less of a problem. I think we can agree that the FBI's track record speaks for itself. If you think about it, only government-sanctioned experts should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. 
think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis Never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.